See, we are afforded, and I say afforded because it came at great cost. We are afforded many freedoms in this country more than any other nation on earth afforded. We are more free to, to do and to speak and to say and to live any way that we choose in this nation because of those great freedoms. But I want you to understand something, that a country divided cannot stand. A country divided cannot stand. We must know our history. We must teach it to our children. You know, I'm thankful for my family members and my extended family members who have served in the U.S. military. Who have, who have defended those freedoms for our country during wartime, but also during peacetime. I am grieved by the hate and the violence that we've seen lately in our country. By the anarchy and the chaos up by some who don't seem to care about this great nation. I love this country. And I am proud to be an American. I've been all over the world. I've been to lots of different places. I've seen a lot of different things. I'm telling you, this is still, even with the chaos, even with the junk, this is still the best nation in the world to live in. Amen. Amen. This morning I want you to imagine that you are on a journey. We're going through, you know, maybe a, a wooded trail. And as we go through that wooded trail, I will be your guide this morning pointing out significant things along the way. I want you to open your scripture up and follow along, and we're gonna we're gonna see a lot of interesting things as we talk about what happened in Nehemiah. And you know, as, as Nehemiah was working in the vision that God had given him, he, he had to make some adjustments along the way, and then he also evaluated the results. And so I want to I want to show you both of those things today, and they're, they're kind of two different things, but um, you know, I kind of look at it like a um, you know a family style meal. You know, where they just set big bowls of stuff on the table. And then what you do with that is up to you. But I think that in that, you're going to find some stuff that you can chew on, that you can eat, that you can apply to your life. And uh, as we go on this journey, you know, the process of transitioning a church or even a ministry um, to a vision-driven model is a major journey. But every major journey requires course corrections along the way. You know, it's interesting because we have to make course corrections in order to get where we want to go. Sometimes we get off track and we got to make a correction to get back on track so that we can end up where we want to end up. So the challenge is to learn as you go and make changes along the way. My wife calls this a growth mindset, being able to learn from our mistakes and, and move on, not, not dwelling on them. You know, only a fool does not learn as he makes his journey. He keeps making the same mistake over and over. And the only thing more painful than learning from experience is not learning from experience. Because you feel like you're stuck in Groundhog's Day, you know, you're, you're making those same things over and over and over. It doesn't seem like you can ever move past them. 
And so understand that, that what I give you this morning is by way of encouragement, but it's also for us and for our good. You know, halfway through rebuilding the wall, Nehemiah, he had to make three major adjustments. And I'm going to give those to you in just a moment. And, and you know, it's interesting because he's, he's worked hard. He's, he's carrying out the vision that God has given him. And along the way, he has to make some adjustments. The first one is that he cared for the neglected. I'm going to point these out to you in just a moment. But you know, in, in any time a church, or a ministry for that matter, goes through major changes, someone feels neglected. Someone feels neglected with, with, when the change comes about. You know, people who feel neglected, they usually let you know by complaining. They let you know that they are being neglected by their complaining. Now look at chapter 5, if you will, verse 1. Nehemiah writes this. He says, Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. What did I say? People who feel neglected usually let you know by complaining. Now... This is not criticism coming from the outside. It's not like you remember Sanballat. He was he was against Nehemiah and he was he was criticizing him out in, in public and open. It's not from outside. Um, these are complaints coming from within, from within the workers who are actually working on the wall. Okay, and and, and Nehemiah he had three groups that were complaining. In verse two, we see there were those that said, "This is too hard." Okay, For there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. So those, that's the, this is too hard group. Okay, It's like they're complaining, they're, they're feeling neglected. What can we do? Um, this is too hard for us to do. The second group is in verse 3. There were others who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. And, and so this is the, the group that says the price is too high. The first group says it's too hard to do. The second group says the price is too high. Now there's a third group. And this is, a, this is not fair group. Look at verse 5. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers and our children like our, their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. We are, and we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. Folks, this isn't fair. So you have, this is too hard, the price is too high, and this is not fair. Now Nehemiah, he had some people who were feeling left out, who were feeling mistreated, or maybe overlooked. And each one of us, as leaders, are going to, in whatever particular ministry we are involved with, we may have people within our ministry that feel the same way. That they're being mistreated, that they're being neglected, that they're being overlooked in some way. But notice how these, I want to I pull out the park here for just a moment. Notice how some of these translators translate his response that's recorded in verse 6 and 7. Verse 6 says, Then I was very angry when I had heard their outcry and these words, I consulted with myself. <laughs> I think that's kind of 
humorous. NIV says, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind. New King James Version says, and I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. After serious thought, the Living Bible says, I was very angry when I heard this. So after thinking about it, I spoke out. And then the American Standard Version says, I was very angry when I heard their cry and these words. Then I consulted with myself. I think, you know, as I, as I put all of that together, I, I just want to give you this principle. Here's the principle that I see in Nehemiah. The angrier you are about a complaint, the more sensitive you need to be in your response. If something strikes you in your heart, you need to take the time and think about your response before you let it out. It may take some time. You may not want to fire away that email right away. You may not want to uh, text right back when something is makes you angry. But the angrier you get, the more you need to tread lightly in your response and be sensitive to what they are saying, especially in your ministry. I love this because Nehemiah, he, he says there, it made him very angry when he heard these complaints. And I consulted with myself. I mean, take the time to understand what they're complaining about. If they're just complaining to be divisive, then correct them. If they're complaining because they're hurt, then help them. There's a key difference there. See, don't shoot your wounded just because they're complaining. It's normal for wounded people to cry out. What you have is you have people who are unhappy, they're complaining because they've been neglected and because it's costing them their families. They're upset about that and so they're crying out. And so my, my uh, adjustment that Nehemiah made here was that he cared for those who were neglected. And you demonstrate your care for the neglected by making a plan to provide for their needs. Nehemiah did not just console them. He didn't just say, well, it's going to be all right. He didn't just, you know, take them and, and, and give them some strokes and say, you're going to make it through this. No, he put forth a plan to make right what was wrong in the things they were complaining about. So when he concluded that their needs and their complaints were legitimate, he took action. What does verse 7 say? It says, I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, you are exacting, you are taking usury, each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against him. Basically, he got everybody together and he told them what was going on. And this, this was something that, that couldn't be allowed to go on. So that first major adjustment that he makes is he cares for the neglected. In your ministry, as a leader, whether it's your family, whether it's your co-workers, whether it's in the church, whether it's in, in a ministry that works along with the church, whatever ministry you're in, you need to care for the neglected. Many times they're going to complain. You're going to hear it. Figure out why they're complaining. Secondly, I would say this. Nehemiah also had to negotiate peace. He had to negotiate peace. 
He had to take the time to negotiate the peace among these people. Look at verse 7 and 8. We, we just read verse 7. 8 says, And I said to them, We, according to our ability, have redeemed, have bought back, if you will, our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now, would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. And again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? You see, he's negotiating between the people who are upset and the people who have been oppressing them. The ones who have been selling them into bondage and into slavery. Who are their Jewish brothers? And he's making it right here. He's negotiating that. And you will likely have to stop and negotiate peace. Among one or more of these groups within your ministry. Between those who like what is happening. And those who don't. Some people are going to appreciate what you're doing. And some people won't. You may have to negotiate peace, bringing them together. You may have to negotiate peace between those who are involved, those who are working on the wall, and those who aren't. Those who are involved in the ministry and those who aren't may need to come together in peace. You may have to negotiate peace between what I want to say is the old guard leaders who might be resisting the change, and the new guard leaders who are all on board with it in negotiating that. See, remember that Nehemiah had some leaders. I want to just point these out quickly to you. Do you remember in chapter 3, verse 5, the nobles of Tekoa who would not work? He had some leaders who would not work. He had some leaders who would not get involved. He also had some who were taking advantage of others. And we read about that in chapter 5, verse 7. These officials, they were taking advantage of these, these other Jews. And then also in, in chapter 3, verse 1, you remember the, the priests who were all in and were willing to begin working on the gates right away? So the, the priests were, were all in and they were fully on board. But then he also had some leaders who were not on board at all. You think about Sanballat. You think about Tobiah and others in, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. They weren't on board at all. So you're going to have to negotiate peace between all of these entities. And that's what we see Nehemiah doing. He had no choice, but he had to negotiate peace. And understand this, if you lead a ministry, if you lead your family, if you are a leader, chances are you will have to negotiate peace at some point between parties that you work with. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's what Jesus said. Blessed are the peacemakers. The third adjustment, the third major adjustment here is Nehemiah stayed among the people. He stayed among the people. You know, since the fall of Jerusalem, the city had been appointed governors. They were under the rule of Artaxerxes, who ruled Persia and, and the whole Persian Empire. A vast empire. And since he couldn't be there, and since he was in Persia, he appointed governors who would watch over that region, that area. And they lived, these governors lived a life of luxury. Okay, they put a heavy tax on the people. They, were, they, were, they lived in the governor's mansion. 
They, they ate uh, from the, the food allotment, the food allowance for the governors. Okay, and so they, they also had a large salary and a big staff. They collected heavy taxes from the people. If you look at verse 15, Nehemiah writes, But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of fear of the Lord. You see, these governors, they lived a life far above the lifestyle of the other people. And they, Nehemiah received the same appointment that they did. He was appointed as the governor of this region. But he didn't take what was offered in that way. He didn't live a life of luxury. Verse 14, I love this. It says, moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. He lived among the people. He took up for the people. You know, because he was appointed like the other governors, I'm sure the people weren't all that excited when Nehemiah got appointed as a governor. Oh, you're probably just going to be just like the rest of them who take from us what little we have and live a life of luxury. But notice Nehemiah's behavior was quite different. He stayed among his people. Verse 14 says that he didn't take the food allowance that was offered as the governor. He didn't take that. He shared his tables with leaders and visitors and commoners. Look at verse 17. It says, moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were among us or around us. So he, he, he shared what he had, but he didn't take what was allotted to him than what was allowed. Um, he also treated his people with dignity and respect. And verse 18 says that he cared for his people. Now that which was prepared each day was one ox, six choice sheep, also birds were prepared for me. And once in ten days all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the governor's food allowance, because the servitude was heavy to his people. So he's, he's taken responsibility, not only for himself, but he's not taking all the, the perks of being the governor. He's living among the people. And this last one really grabs me. It says he worked on the wall beside his people. Look at verse 16. I have a little asterisk out by that. I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. In other words, he didn't have a free pass just because he was a governor. He didn't add to the people's uh, burden. What he did is he got in there, rolled up his sleeves and went to work beside these people. And he lived with them and he served with them and he stayed among his people. Folks, I think, I think that's huge. That Nehemiah is one of them. See, our community, our community is looking 
for Christian leaders who are real. They're looking for Christian leaders who are not odd for God. They're not weird. They might be different. They might be set apart. But they're real people who are different. And here's their difference. They're Christian leaders who are normal people but have an abnormal commitment to Jesus Christ. That's what our community is looking for. They are looking for normal people who have an abnormal commitment to Jesus Christ. Can we do that? In our marriages, in our homes, in our work, in our, in our church, in our community, can we be Christian people who are real, who are normal, but have an abnormal commitment to Jesus Christ? That's what they're waiting to see. See, when they find that kind of leader, they want to follow that leader. So Nehemiah, he made some adjustments along the way. Great adjustments. The rest of this book talks about evaluating the results. And here I'm going to transition towards that. You know, chapters 1 through 5 in Nehemiah talk about building the wall. They talk about all the things that went into building the wall and rebuilding the wall. From these chapters, we learn the process of vision. A vision for leaders. A vision that we can, we can jump onto and follow. Now, chapters 6 through 13, Nehemiah, he describes the finished product. He describes what happened because the vision was completed. You know, the old saying is that the proof is in the pudding. I'll use a cooking analogy because I like to cook and I like food. I think some of you do too. The proof is in the pudding. The proof that God's vision has been followed and implemented is really quite obvious. Because when God's vision has been followed in, let's say, a church or a ministry, the results are very dramatic. It's very evident. You can see it. I want to give you, in just real briefly, eight evidences, eight key evidences that the vision has caught on. And the first one is this. It's very simple. It's the completion of the vision. Nehemiah had the vision that God gave him for rebuilding the wall. And what happened? The vision was completed. In chapter 6, verse 15, it says, So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month Elul in 52 days. From the time they started on the wall till the time the wall was finished, it was 52 days. Talk about a, a, a record accomplishment. But you see, that's a key evidence that God is in the vision when you see a completion of the vision. <laughs> we need to understand this because a half-completed vision is not the goal. No one starts out to build only half a house. No one starts out to build half of the vision that God has given, but rather the complete vision. And understand this, that, that in, in Philippians 1, 6, it says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He doesn't lead us down the road. 
and then says, oh, wait a minute, I made a mistake. Uh, we're not going to be working on this. We're going to be working on this now. I am confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. You see, that's what we see here. The wall was completed on the 25th day. I love that. Completion of the vision. Number two, key evidence. The obvious evidence, there is obvious evidence of God's work. I like this because the, it was completed. But look at verse 16. It says, when all our enemies heard of it, when all of them heard of it, and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence. For they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The only way this could have been accomplished was with God's help. See, it was obvious that this was God at work. It was obvious to the enemies. It was obvious to all the nations surrounding them. See, when a God thing starts happening in a church or in a ministry, even the enemies of the church recognize it as a God thing. They may not even believe in God, but they're going to recognize something supernatural going on there. Something allowed them beyond what they are to accomplish that. I love that. Because it is that obvious when God is at work. When God shows up. Number three. There's continued opposition and criticism. This is a key evidence that the vision has caught on. Even when he had finished the project, Nehemiah was still dealing with opposition and criticism. In chapter 6, look at verse 17 and following. It says, And in those days, many leaders went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. They were exchanging letters. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Barah, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. Then Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. They're talking about all the good stuff that's happening. And so Tobiah sends letters that are frightening toward Nehemiah. Maybe life threats. I don't know exactly what would threaten Nehemiah. See, you would think that by this time, once the wall is completed, that the criticism would have stopped. But here's the reality. It never stops. Criticism never stops. Two quick cautions, though, about opposition and criticism. Here they are. Concerning opposition, the only person with no opposition is the person who is doing nothing worth opposing. If you are doing something for the kingdom of God, you will be opposed. If you're not being opposed... Maybe you're going the same way as the world. 
The only person with no opposition is the person who is doing nothing worth opposing. Secondly, criticism. The most blessed ministries in the arena are those that are most criticized. I mean, think about it. You see a ministry, you see a church that is tremendously blessed. Understand, there is a current of criticism that is making them tougher and more resilient. We're being tested by fire, and so therefore we are able to endure to the end because we are holding fast. You see, that's the way criticism works. It builds within us grit. It builds within us perseverance. And it causes endurance for us. Oh, we don't like the criticism. We don't like people opposing what we're trying to do. But understand, in the kingdom, Jesus said, they hated me, they will hate you also. That's right. So grow some thick skin and get ready. Because we haven't even seen persecution in this land yet. That's right. Yet. Oh, it's coming. It's coming. And the house of God, the people of God, had better build in some steel right now into your core. You better get that thick rhino skin on. Because it's coming. And they're going to test whether you're willing to stand firm. Or shrink back. That's right. When God shows up, He shows up for His glory. Amen. Notice also, number four, the emergence of new leaders. See, after Nehemiah built the wall, new leaders stepped forward. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. It says, When the wall was rebuilt and he had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. <laughs> See, Jerusalem had no need for gatekeepers or singers for the temple or Levites to lead the temple in worship. They hadn't needed those positions in nearly 70 years. <laughs> That's why there was none available when the project began. But now, the vision was complete. The leaders were suddenly available. New leaders were emerging. Folks, you want to see evidence of God at work and a, and a, a fact that the, the people have, have, have caught the vision? It's that we're raising up new leadership within our body, within the church, within the ministries. New leadership. Because what God plans, He resources. He's going to see it come to completion. Number five, we also see major contributions by the people. Chapter seven is just a list, if you will, of all the people who worked on the wall and what they gave, all that they gave. The impressive thing is that it shows that when a vision catches on, when, when people finally catch on to the vision of, of where you're headed and what's going on, people will contribute. By the end of chapter 12, people were giving record-setting ways. I just want to read one verse there. Chapter 12, verse 47, it says, So all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, 
gave the portions due the singers and the gatekeepers as each day required, and they set apart the consecrated portion for the Levites, and the Levites set apart the consecrated portion for the sons of Aaron. They hadn't done anything like this in 70 years, and all of a sudden, now they've got gatekeepers, they've got singers, they've got Levites and priests, they've got the sons of Aaron, and so they're making, the, the people are giving, and, and their tithes are coming in, and they're pouring it in, and, and it's making this something for the glory of God. But you see, that's a key evidence that the vision has taken root. Major contributions by people. And by chapter 13, the entire nation was given. Verse 13, verse 12. Chapter 13, verse 12. Here's my point. People give to vision. People don't give to me. People don't give to you. People don't give to the church. People give to vision. Of what God is wanting to accomplish through us. In this area and all over the world. But they give to vision. You want to be a part of, of something that God is doing in our world. I want to be a part of something God is doing in our world. And it's amazing when God's people catch the vision. Then they understand, hey, I can have a part in this. I can do this. I can be, I can give out of the abundance that God has given me. I can give. And so we see that. That there's major contributions by the people. And people give to vision. But it's God's vision. It's His word. Number six. I gotta move on. It only gets better from here. There is renewed commitment to worship and to obedience. When God's people catch the vision, when the vision has caught on, there will be a renewed commitment to worship. And to obedience to God. Nehemiah 8 through 10 is a remarkable passage describing the renewal of the people. Chapter 8 tells us that when they read the book of the law, when they read the book of the law together, look at chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate, and they asked. Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given. Verse 3. He read from it before the square, which is in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand that all the people were attending to the book of the law. That's why I said that we're going to read chapters 5 through 13, you know, early in the morning until midday. They heard the book of the law. There was a renewed interest and commitment to worship. By chapter 9, the people practiced public confession. And they end, they end up making a covenant with God. Look in chapter 9, verse 1. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. And then verse 38, chapter 9. It says, now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. This is huge. They've been in exile for 70 years. 
Their city has been destroyed. Their wall has been destroyed. Their temple worship has been destroyed. And, and Nehemiah comes back and he rebuilds the wall. And all of a sudden there is a renewed interest because the vision has been completed of the wall. There is a renewed interest in setting the things of the temple right. Of getting back to their roots. Of getting back to a covenant with God. Because they have been unfaithful to him. And he says that they, they, they put together a solemn assembly. If you look back in the last verse of chapter 8. He called a solemn assembly. Which is a time of repentance. A time of renewal. A time of recommitting their lives to God. They had gotten away from the law. They had intermarried with, with other peoples from other nations. Something that God told them, I want you to be a people unto myself. They had married foreign wives, if you will. Idolaters. Not monotheists, not ones that, that worship the one true God. But that worship idols and they had intermarried and intermingled. They had played the harlot with God. And now they repent of that. And now they come back with a renewed commitment and make another covenant with God. And God, we are sorry for what we've done. And we're ready to listen and obey your word. Folks, this is big stuff. And chapter 10 gives us the list of the leaders of the people who signed that covenant with God. The seventh key evidence of new people joining in. I'm almost done. Chapters 11, 12, and 12. They document the people who moved into the newly walled city of Jerusalem. Okay, what you have is you have people coming in and joining the vision. People understanding that lived out of the country, away from the city, were coming to the city because they wanted to be where the Shekinah glory of God rests. I love this because vision always attracts people. If you are a person of vision, you will attract other people to you. Because people are drawn to people who are passionate about what they're doing. And to people who are going somewhere. If you're passionate about what you are doing and what God has given you to do, and you're headed in that direction. People want to be around that. People will come and people will flock to that. Now I want you to understand something. The reason I wanted to preach through this was for our people, yes. But I wanted to preach through this for me too. Because I need this vision for leaders. Recognize this. All of our staff... Each one of them have vision in their areas of ministry. A vision for what they are passionate about and what they would like to see happen in those areas. Lest you think I'm blowing smoke. A few weeks ago, probably a month ago, Braden brought this to me. And he said, Brother Riggs, this is our vision for the college ministry for this next year. Yeah. There's three pages here. It's concise. It's to the point. It's intentional. 
but it's his vision for our college ministry. It's written down so people can grab hold of it, jump on board, and be a part of it. But I want to tell you, our youth ministry, our children's ministry, our ministries for our, for, that our, our, our ministers are working with, all of them have a vision that, that they are passionate about and want to see God do here. Amen. I think that's huge. Because people follow vision. People want to be a part of something like that. And you know what? I'm expecting great things in every one of these areas. I'm expecting God to do a great work in this church, in, this, in these ministries, because they are following ministers that have vision. That's not all. As I wrap this up, number eight is that one of the key evidences that the vision is caught is that there is openness to further change. In chapter 13, we have the remarkable conclusion of the story of Nehemiah. After Nehemiah took five chapters, to pull off the first project in seven chapters to report the results. Chapter 13 basically says this in a nutshell. A completed vision leads to openness to further change. Once you complete a vision, it leads to openness to further change. Understand this. The temple the wall was rebuilt, but the temple was also cleansed. The tithes were restored. The Sabbath was restored. Marriages with people from other countries was forbidden. The people came back to God because the vision was completed. They were open to other changes and moving toward what God was doing. See, I hope that you've enjoyed this study as much as I have. It's been a tremendous blessing to me. And I hope that you will and that you, you have and you will continue to benefit from it. But understand that Nehemiah, Nehemiah was God's servant leader. God's servant leader to accomplish the task of rebuilding Jerusalem and the wall around it. Many of you have been called to be God's servant leader for such a time as this. For rebuilding this great nation. For rebuilding his kingdom work right here, right now. To bring revival among God's people. To be salt and light wherever you are. You know, Jesus on servant leadership, he said, I came to serve, not to be served. 
method of servant leadership was to give it all and lay it all out there. And we're afraid that if we lay it all out there, there won't be nothing for us. But do you understand, by him emptying himself, God exalted him to a place beyond all places. He made him Lord. He exalted him so far beyond everything that he is Lord of everything that exists because he emptied himself. And we should do no less. Could you? Could you be God's servant? Could you be a Nehemiah? See, sometimes there's things that stand in the way of that. Sometimes our pride won't let us be a servant. We're afraid somebody might think something about us. We're afraid that they might think that, that man, we're just, we're just an idiot because we're, we're just serving other people and giving it all away. But you know what? God is going to resource the things that His work, He's going to do it His way. And all we have to do is be willing servants. Could you be God's servant leader? But it starts with a surrendered heart. It starts right here. Saying, here I am. Send me. If we're not willing to go, if we're not willing to serve, if we're not willing to love, then we cannot be God's servant leader. It starts by recommitting or committing for the first time your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. See, if we're going to see revival in this church and in this land, it's going to be because the people of God get their hearts right with Him. Not because the sinners do. Not because everybody else. It's because the people of God, because then His glory will rest and abide. And they will see key evidences of God's work in us. See, if His glory is abiding here, there ain't enough seats in this place. Because that kind of vision, that kind of glory, people will show up. They will be drawn to Loving Father, I thank you for this time. And I thank you that you recorded the book of Nehemiah. Father, so that we could understand what your servant leader looks like. And Father, that in the beginning he had a burden for his people. And Father, you put that burden there and you gave him a vision of what you desired him to do. And Father... He prayed and he went to work. And Father, you honored his prayers. You honored his labors. And Father, you helped him 
in the presence of the king. You helped him in the presence of his enemies. Father, you helped him with the vision that you gave him. And Father, we know that you will do no less for us. So Father, I pray that even in this day of darkness, even in this day of, of pandemic, even in this day of sickness and disease, Father, that you would be glorified in your people. Father, that you would purge us, that you would refine us, that you would refresh us, that you would renew us by your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray this over your people. I ask, Father, that you would redeem us. Father, that we would be committed to Jesus Christ and his kingdom in an undying and faithful commitment to him. And Father, that you would put in us the, 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 the metal that we need to withstand the heat of the fires of persecution. Father, I pray that you would restore us to our salvation, to the joy that we would be desiring to tell others about Jesus. Father, that we wouldn't be talking about the, the COVID or the corona, but Father, that we would be talking about Jesus and the hope that he brings. Father, I pray that you would stir in us a desire to be all in with you. And Father, I pray for revival for this church. I pray for revival for this nation. I pray, Father, that you would stir the hearts of your people in this great nation. And Father, that we would desire more of you and less of us. Father, I pray that you would put to death our own pride. Father, that keeps us from coming to you. I ask, Father, that we this morning that are here would lay it on the altar. Father, that we would lay it on the altar for you. That, Father, we would deny ourselves. That we would pick up our cross daily. And that we would follow you. Father, I pray that you would give us a, not a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and of a strong mind. Father, we know your word. We, we, we claim your promises. Father, we are thankful that we can be, that we would be, that we are willing to be devoted to you. Father, we love you. Thank you for being with us in this place. Guide us in a time of response. Father, that today we would decide where we stand with you and your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.